Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and listening today. We had a little bit of a mishap this Sunday at the river, and the sermon didn't get recorded. We're not totally sure why, and we'll get it figured out, but I wanted to share the content of that sermon with you anyway. So if you were new to the river, we were really glad to have you. And if you've never been and you're just listening online, I hope to get to meet you someday and see you here. My name is Rod Tucker, and I'm one of the lead pastors here at the river, and I'm very excited about the series that we've been doing. It's called What and So What? We've had people sending questions in, and then we've been trying to answer them to the best of our ability. So this week's topic in What and So What? was an interesting one, and I really loved preaching about it. And so I'm excited to share with you what we talked about. And in order to get there, I want to start by telling you a little bit about myself and one piece, I guess, of Rod Tucker history. I grew up playing chess. I actually learned to play chess when I was six years old, and I have been playing chess ever since. Now, I never got really good. I never became a world champion. I never played in any tournaments, and I've never beat any really, really, really good people at chess, but I've always loved to play chess. And When you first learn to play chess, at least when I first learned to play chess, I learned that the king is the most important piece on the board because there's this idea in chess called checkmate. And if you can checkmate your opponent, you can win the game. And so I learned that I needed to protect my king so that my king would not get checkmated and I could win the game. Now, as I've grown and I've learned to play chess more and more, I've heard many different theories as to which piece is the most important piece on the board. I had a friend one time who had actually gotten a Thai chess game with a grandmaster, and he said that pawns were the most important piece on the board, and he had great reasoning for it, and Um, We had a pretty good conversation about it, and I respected him because of his ability to play chess. And so there's a lot of different opinions. But when I sat down for the first time and started to teach my eight-year-old son how to play chess, I got a totally different response. Because as we moved through the pieces, and I showed him how each piece moved, how the king could move one space in any direction, how the pawns could move forward, but they could attack diagonally, and how the bishops could move diagonally. When we got to the queen, and my eight-year-old learned that queens can move as far as they want, almost in any direction, as long as they're not impeding another piece or being blocked by another piece, he was like, oh, man, this is the best piece on the board, Dad. Why did you wait so long to tell me this? And I thought it was really funny because I wanted him to learn the king was the most important. But now every time we play chess, he does everything he can to protect his queen. He does everything he can to use his queen. And um, he hasn't fully learned all the rules, so I beat him every time. And I deeply shame him and tell him, you're the you're not as good as me. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But he's learning how the pieces move, and we have a fun time playing. Now, the reason I talk about chess, and 
the reason I want you to listen closely to what I'm saying about chess is because it relates to today's topic. And so what I learned later in life as I played chess longer and longer and longer is that the queen, this powerful, powerful piece, if I bring her out too early in the game and put her on the playing field too early, there are too many pieces on the board and there's a really good chance that she will get trapped or captured. And if you lose your queen, you're in a world of hurt. And so I learned to keep my queen back. And then as the game came to an end, part of my end game strategy was to then pull my queen out and let her decimate the board. And many, 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 many great chess players use this strategy. And it's well known that you should never pull your queen out early because if you pull your queen out early, you will be in a world of hurt. And if you ever have the opportunity to take someone else's queen, you do. Because if you can take someone else's queen, then the game's not over because you haven't checkmated your opponent. But really, the game is over. The game's not completely over. You still have to go through the process of checkmate. But without a queen, your opponent is doomed. And so the topic that we talked about on Sunday and that I want to talk to you about today is this. God wants to take one of the most oppressed groups of people in the history of the world and use them powerfully to move, move his kingdom forward. I'll say that again. God wants to take one of the most oppressed groups of people in the history of the world and use them to powerfully move his kingdom forward. Women. That group is women. Now I have a friend named Pat who does a lot of crisis aid around the world and he works a lot with human trafficking and there was a time in his life where he would travel to what are called no-go zones in the world. They're areas where the UN and many countries will not distribute aid because they're too dangerous. An example might be Somalia, a no-go zone where aid is not distributed because it's just too dangerous of a place and it doesn't cooperate with the rest of the world. And so Pat would go to these no-go zones and he would distribute aid to people and he did it as a Christian missionary. And he told me that because he had something that other people needed, he could do ministry with people there. If he had food, he could pray with people. He could spend time talking about Jesus with people because there was an exchange. He was giving something that they need and they were giving him something that he wanted to share. They were listening and he could do as much ministry and prayer as he wanted as long as it was only done to the men. Now, Pat told me that the moment he decided that he was going to do ministry to women in these no-go zones in the Middle East, not only did people no longer want his aid, but a price was put on his head and people wanted him dead. There is something about ministry to women that Pat experienced 
that had been set in place for a very long time, that the enemy knew that if he could set women free, then something crazy could happen. If the queen could be released onto the board at the end of the game, then they could decimate what the enemy was trying to do. But the queen was being not used. It was being oppressed. It was being pushed to the side. And because of that, ministry to women was almost impossible in those places that my friend had went. And a price was put on his head. Now, when I thought how to present this topic and what I should talk about in regard to women, I thought I could list tons and tons of stats um, about how women have been oppressed throughout the world. I could go historically and talk about oppression. I could talk about how God desires women to be free and how women should be free and how it's a right. And I could talk about all the rights that women don't have, that men have. And I could talk about every oppressed group in the history of the, in the world and then add that women were part of that group and prove these topics to you. But I thought, man... Even if I talked for four hours, it wouldn't be enough. And even if you were engaged with me for four hours, it wouldn't be enough. And so I decided I just want to come out of the word of God and talk about what God says about women and moving his kingdom forward. I will share with you a couple stats that might help get this conversation going. The first one being we are the greatest generation to ever fight human trafficking in the history of the world, meaning this generation fights human trafficking more than any other generation in the world. And at the very same time, this generation views more pornography than any other generation in the world. I saw a video on this and the person who was speaking said, that is like campaigning against a specific candidate that you dislike or even hate and then turning around and donating to his or her campaign. And human trafficking hurts so many women around the world and men, but many, 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 many little girls and women. I, I thought that I could also add that throughout history, there's been no other people group who's been considered property more than women. If you look throughout time, women were not given the opportunity to marry. They weren't given the opportunity to divorce. They couldn't own land. They couldn't vote. Many women were just considered property and not even human. And so what? God wants to use the most historically oppressed people in the history of the world to move his kingdom forward. And what do we do with that? And so to begin, a lot of times when I study a topic, I look at the beginning of the Bible and, and, and where something first comes in the Bible into play. And we know that women enter into the scene at Genesis. And because they enter into the scene at Genesis, that's where I wanted to start. And we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as the story goes. And very quickly on in Genesis chapter 3, we read a story that points to a critical moment in history. And that story goes like this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That's Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning, and we see the story happening. And so I don't want you to turn this audio off because you hear me say some things you might disagree with, but I want you to listen very closely because I'm going somewhere with it. And if you don't allow me to finish, then you'll miss the point completely. So listen closely. The first flawed leadership moment in the history of the world began with a woman leading a man. The first flawed leadership moment in the history of the world began with a woman leading a man, and the first disobedient act in the Bible was committed by a woman. The first mistake ever made in the history of the universe was committed by a female. But do you know what's worse Do you know what's worse than that? The first person to ever have a finger pointed at them and be blamed for everything that is wrong with the world was that same woman. And the first person to be told by another human that she wasn't enough because of the terrible decision she had made was a woman. And women have been hearing that same lie ever since. Women have been hearing that same lie ever since. Now let me ask you a question and think about it. If you're trying to overthrow a kingdom, if you're trying to overthrow a kingdom, do you go after the peasants of the kingdom and kill them all? Or do you go after the royalty. It's obvious you go after the royalty because the royalty of the kingdom are the ones who decide the structure of the kingdom. The royalty are the ones who decide the peace of the kingdom. The royalty are the ones who decide how food is distributed. The royalty are the ones who decide the rules and what happens in the kingdom. If you go after the peasants, you will get nothing. But if you go after the royalty, then you can take over a whole kingdom if you are successful. So let me pretend for a moment with you that I'm the devil. And I know that you turned on this podcast hoping, hey, I hope Rod Tucker pretends he's the devil today on this podcast. But Let me pretend that I'm the devil. I'm just kidding. I know you didn't want me to pretend that. But if I'm the devil and I have to come up with a scheme that will last for thousands and thousands of years, here's how it's going to work. If I can go after the woman, 
and work really hard to get her to mess up and then actually make her mess up as a leader and a person with authority and power then I can for the rest of time convince her and all of her offspring that she's not enough for what God made her to be and do. And if I can convince all of the men to blame her for this, then I can destroy a universal calling. The enemy went after the royalty. He went after the queen, the one who had the power to decimate him, to destroy his works. This is called shame. Now to frame that a little better for you, imagine guilt as defined by this statement. Guilt is the belief that you've done something wrong. And if guilt is the belief that you've done something wrong, then shame would be defined as believing that you are the thing that is wrong. So if guilt is believing that you've done something wrong, shame is now believing that you are the thing that is wrong. And women have been living with shame ever since. You're not enough. You don't have it in you. You'll never have what it takes. You're not wired that way. You're not meant to lead that way. You were created to do something else. You're not meant to stand up here with the rest of us. You're not meant to be the type of person that you feel deep inside you want to be because you just weren't created to be like that. And we see in Eve that you can't be what you want to be. But this, to me, this idea is deeper than shame, and I call it generational shame. So to prove my point further, what I would ask you is, do you know what generational poverty is? See, generational poverty happens when one person is living in poverty and they have children who watch them live in poverty and they watch the decisions that they make and they watch the way they spend their money and they watch their mindset and they watch how they live and then they copy that because it's the only worldview that they know and then they have kids and they copy them and their kids copy them and their kids copy them and Pretty soon we have a long line of generations who exist with the same mindset, generational poverty. This is one of the reasons that God had the book of Leviticus in the Bible. I know many of us think the book of Leviticus is boring, and I, to be honest with you, I don't just sit down and read it at night to go to bed unless I'm really trying to fall asleep. But the book of Leviticus is a powerful book because It is after Israel has stepped out of slavery. And the issue with Israel being in slavery is that by the time they got set free, those who were free had been born into slavery. So there was a generational mindset of slavery happening within Israel. And because of that, no one knew how to be free. And so God sent the book of Leviticus so that people could learn step by step how to live as a free person. An example would have been if you stole something, you don't have to get your hand cut off like a slave. You can instead give a grain offering, or if you accidentally kill someone, you can do this type of offering. You don't have to live the way of the slave anymore. You have a new way to live. And these are generational 
curses that are passed down, generational ways of thinking. And with the Eve and Adam scenario, we see a generational sexism that is passed down that tells women, you're the reason and you're not enough. So I believe this. I believe Eve really messed up. And I believe Eve lived with the shame of her mistakes for her entire life. And I believe the daughters of Eve and all of the women and little girls who have watched their moms live not believing they are enough to be everything God created them to be also believe and live lives that embrace this lie. And so now, in a very supernaturally evil way, a structure has been created. A system, if you may, that produces little girls who are not free to be who God made them to be. I will say that again. And now, in a very evil, supernatural way, a system has been created that produces little girls who are not free to be who God made them to be. Listen, friends. Listen closely. I think it is time we stop holding Eve's sin against women. I believe, I know, I feel it is time we stop holding Eve's sin against women. And so if you're a woman who has experienced that and felt not good enough, felt like you're not wired the right way, felt less than when you look in the mirror, if you feel like you carry around the lie of Eve, then let me know. I, I, I want to let you know that I pray for you. I pray that you will be free. I pray that you will know who you are. I pray that when you look in the mirror, you sense the radiance that God has put inside of you and that just you is enough. And not only do I think that we need to stop holding Eve's sin against women, I think it's time we stop relating every woman in the world to Eve. Every woman in the world is not Eve. We have Anna, and we have Dory, and we have Crystal, and we have Heather, and we have Kelly, and we have Susan, and we have many other women. And listen, none of them are perfect. None of them are perfect at the river, at the church. We say, if you have a pulse, you have issues. None of them are perfect. They've all messed up. But they didn't do what Eve did. They didn't do it. They didn't pick fruit from a tree that God said not to and eat it and cause the fall of all of humanity by leading their husband down a wrong path. They didn't do that. Eve did what Eve did. And because of that, women have had a really bad example. And it has trickled down generationally as men have pointed the finger at you, women, and as you have pointed the finger at yourself. And to be honest, men haven't had a good example either. 
learning to point the finger at someone else and blame them instead of taking responsibility for our actions, we are really, really, really good at that. I speak for myself and I speak for men. But here's the hope. Here's the hope I want you to hear. In Galatians 3, 26 through 28, we read, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, and for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ladies, let that sink in. You hear it. Over and over again, you're one in Christ, but dig deep because God wants you to know there is neither male nor female in Christ. There is no difference. And this is a huge part of Jesus' mission. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 puts women into his genealogy. He puts women into his genealogy because he wants to distinguish the difference, that there's, that there's no difference. He wants to distinguish that he can take any person and use them to move his kingdom forward. And he even puts Rahab, the prostitute, in his genealogy. And if you think Rahab had much of a choice, you need to study context because I'm telling you right now, women were treated like property. And Jesus takes this woman who believes she's property and he puts her in his lineage and he changes everything. It reminds me of the story of Malala. If you've never read the book, I Am Malala, you should read it because Malala is the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And when she was a little girl, she wanted to attend an all-male school. And because she was in a country that stood so vastly against that and had radical people who stood so vastly against that idea, Malala got shot in the face. But she survived. And when she survived, she became an advocate for women's rights all over the world. And if you YouTube the video or Google the video of her receiving the Nobel Peace Prize and you pay close attention and you find the right video, you can look in the background and you can see her dad weeping and crying, so proud of his daughter. And if you do a little more digging, you're going to find that when Malala was born, her father pulled out the generational lineage. He pulled out that piece of paper that only men's names could be written on. And he took a pen and he wrote his daughter's name, Malala, on that page. And he is, took a stand for history. And in that moment when she's receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, you can't tell me that him putting his daughter's name on his family's lineage isn't supernaturally connected to the reality that she wins the Nobel Peace Prize because by him changing her identity and not making her property, but making her a human and making her a leader and drawing out everything that God had put inside of her, he changed history. And we as men are called to do the same thing for the women in our lives and for the women not in our lives. And if we don't, we're not following the Jesus way. 
Malala's dad, even in a whole nother religion, was following the Jesus way because he said, I see this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my daughter in the lineage. He did the same thing that Jesus did. And when you follow the way of Jesus, you change history just like Jesus and Malala's dad did what Jesus did. This is the same reason that Jesus goes to a well in the heat of the day when you are only going to find people who are rejected. Because everyone draws water at dusk or at dawn. Everyone draws water during those times. That's the most comfortable time to draw water. And if there's going to be someone drawing water during the heat of the day, it's going to be someone who has to risk their life if they're going to try to draw water with everyone else. And so... Jesus waits for the person to come during the heat of the day and he finds a Samaritan woman and she comes to him and he says, where is your husband? And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in John 4 when you say you have no husband because you have five husbands. You've been divorced five times and you're living with a man now and you're not even married. And when we read that passage in our North American minds, we think Jesus is calling this woman out for her sin and then showing grace to her. But listen, she was property. Women couldn't divorce men. Women couldn't marry men. She was property. She meant nothing to anyone and she was a Samaritan woman. And so Jesus in his words and telling her things that she was too ashamed to even admit says, I see that you have been rejected and abused and, and, and taken advantage of and divorced five times out of your control. And I see now that the man you're with won't even marry you and even though that is the case of the world I want you to give me water and she guffaws and she steps back and she is amazed that Jesus would say I want you to serve me and in that moment that woman experiences a radical transformation because Jesus is able to tell her you're worthy of serving me no matter what anyone else has put on you no matter any label and she turns around and she walks into her village and she becomes the gospel preacher for her entire village the woman who was embracing the lie of Eve who had been the queen pushed out too early in the game and blamed like, like Adam blamed Eve for all of the mistakes of humanity. The woman who carried around this lie with her and because of that was property now was completely free. And so if you have ever felt like the Samaritan woman or Eve or property or less than, God wants one thing for you. And that is that you feel like you. And that you, just you is enough. And that you, just you can lead. And that you, just you are powerful. Being just you. And that you, simply you, can fulfill the plans that God has for you that he says in Ephesians 1, advanced works that I created for you to do that you are not Eve and you don't have to carry her junk around with you. You can call the kingdom to earth. And if you believe in the word, uncles, 
dads, brothers. It's okay if you've read the word wrong. It's okay if you've read passages wrong. It's okay if you don't understand the context. If you need help with context, shoot me an email and I would love to share the context of scripture about how Jesus is for women to be free. But if you believe the word uncles, dads, brothers, grandpas, grandmas, moms, sisters, especially the first group I listed, if you believe that the word of God is the word of God, then you have a responsibility to bleed for the freedom of women. And if we really are the church, the gathering of believers, the ones called to be a light on a hill, the ones called to show the love of God to the world, then we have a responsibility to spend our time and energy and resources and give everything we have to set this group of people free. Because God wants to use women. One of the most oppressed people groups historically and today in this world. And use them to powerfully move his kingdom forward. Women are our queens. And if we can get them out on the board at the right time, they will decimate the enemy. And that, my friends, is our responsibility. It's mine and it's yours. And ladies, I am so sorry that this hasn't happened for you. I'm so sorry that you were pushed out and blamed too early in the game and you've been running ever since just for your lives. But now is the time to change and God will make all things new. And it is time for us to be a part of the restoration of the years the enemy has tried to take from women and stand up for this powerful, powerful, powerful group of people in the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening. Go in peace.